1: When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated and time-consuming fast. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, Vanta. Vanta's leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. Watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash cyber. They're hoping in Australia that those tapes made it to the shredder and didn't fall off the truck. Equifax's board of directors gets re elected. Are China's espionage services preparing the battle space for a supply chain attack? New Spectre like vulnerabilities are found in Intel chips. Google and Amazon clamp down on domain fronting, and anti censorship advocates are unhappy. Your kitty, we have Monero for you. And a change of command at NSA and US Cyber Command. From the CyberWire studios at DataTribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, May 4th, 2018. May the 4th be with you. Australia's Commonwealth Bank gets a black eye from its loss of about 20 million customers' records. In 2016, the bank engaged Fuji Xerox to decommission one of the Commonwealth Bank's data centers. And that entailed secure destruction of 15 years' worth of customer statements on the center's backup tapes. After the decommissioning, however, the bank became aware that it didn't have the certificate that would have vouched for the tapes' destruction, nor could the tapes themselves be found. After looking around and considering various possibilities, including but not limited to the off-chance that the records fell off the truck on their way to destruction, the bank decided that the records had in fact been destroyed and that there was no need to notify the customers. The incident appears to have been an accident and not a hack, and probably customer accounts weren't compromised. But the bank's failure to notify customers when it realized what had happened doesn't look good. Give them credit for retracing the delivery truck's route and scouring the roadside for fallen tapes. But still. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority Tuesday said that trust in Australia's banks had been badly eroded, and that Commonwealth Bank in particular had fallen from grace. The bank will be required to carry an additional billion dollars in regulatory capital as the result of that fall. Commonwealth Bank has been commendably contrite and promises to do better in the future. Its leaders might take heart from this week's elections for Equifax board members. Despite the horrific data breach the credit bureau endured on their watch— Every member of the board who stood for re-election was returned to office by the shareholders, who are either unusually discerning, forgiving, or inattentive. We're guessing door number three. Still, congratulations and best wishes to Equifax. May your house cleaning and restoration continue apace. Researchers at ProtectWise think they discern a shift in Chinese cyber-espionage— a focus on IT staff in targeted enterprises, and collection of code-signing certificates. These are taken as signs of preparation for supply chain attacks. Intel has confirmed that spectre-like chip vulnerabilities reported by an industry site in Germany are real. There are eight of them, according to c T, the German publication Computer Technik, and Intel is working on fixes. C-apostrophe-t calls the flaws Spectre-NG. A number of researchers appear to have contributed to the discovery, Google's Project Zero among them. One of the newly discovered issues is arguably more serious than the original Spectre problem. It could be exploited, some think, to bypass virtual machine isolation from cloud hosts and then infiltrate sensitive data, including passwords and keys. For all that, researchers are cautiously optimistic— that the flaws are relatively unlikely to see widespread exploitation. Intel plans to roll fixes out in two tranches, one this month and a second in August. Researchers at security firm Imperva warn of Kitty, a crypto miner that specializes in Monero. Kitty exploits the so-called Drupalgeddon 2.0 remote code execution flaw, which has been patched. Kitty is particularly problematic, SC Magazine reports, in that it compromises web application servers, from whence it goes on to compromise future users of apps running on those servers. Amazon and Google have, as expected, put an end to domain fronting, a feature widely used by services like Open Whisper's Signal to evade Internet censorship. Google began the process some weeks ago, pointing out that domain fronting had been an accidental and not supported feature of their content delivery system, Amazon shut the option down this week, telling Open Whisper that their use of Amazon's CloudFront would be suspended immediately if Open Whisper's Signal continued using third-party domains without their permission. In domain fronting, an app like Signal is able to obscure a connection's destination. Thus, as far as a Russian or Chinese or Qatari or other state sensor is concerned, they're simply seeing a connection to Google or Amazon – not to a prohibited service like Signal. The censors could either block nothing, or they could shut down everything provided by the big content delivery networks, which would be as close to shutting down the internet as makes little difference. The upshot, as the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others put it, is that Amazon and Google have elected, in their business models, to foreclose certain ways of evading censorship. U.S. Cyber Command today was officially elevated to combatant command status, putting it on a par with major military organizations like U.S. Strategic Command. General Paul Nakasone got his fourth star as he assumed command of Cyber Command and duties as director, National Security Agency. Nakasone replaces Admiral Michael Rogers, who now enters retirement. So hail and farewell, respectively, General Nakasone and Admiral Rogers. Hackers who don't like the U.S. state of Georgia's proposed anti-hacking law have protested by, wait for it, hacking sites in the Peach State. So, this is arguably better thought out than dim-witted homages to war criminals on an Arizona highway sign, but still, really. The hacktivists aren't alone in thinking the law is a bad one. The man himself and the person of big tech companies is inclined to agree— but there are surely better ways of making a point. All of you young techno-libertarians out there, you say you want a revolution, but if you go hacking some sites in the county of Barrow, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. That's what some old guys told us, anyway. Hey everybody, want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's from the Sands Technology Institute, and he's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, welcome back. You know, uh, we had the uh, recent news about um, hardware flaws like Rohammer and Spectre, uh, but you wanted to make the point that uh, maybe we need to look uh, into the past to uh, to be reminded that some of these things might not be so new.
2: Yes, and the reason sort of I'm saying that is, you know, being a developer myself, you always sort of assume that hardware is flawless, which is kind of odd because I know my code is not flawless. So why should uh, the developers that develop hardware be any better uh, in sort of writing code? And that's essentially what they do, even if it doesn't look like code, uh, they sort of design systems, which of course you know, have flaws. And so I looked a little bit in the history here, how old are these flaws? Now, you know, Spectre Meltdown sort of was the Big hit uh, recently. Turns out, actually, I think it was around 2006, 2008, papers were already being published that essentially just talked about this particular flaw. If you have these predictive execution threats, that well, a code that may not be supposed to be executed based on privilege settings will get executed. And then if you don't clean up right, well, uh, you end up uh, with uh, sort of approach escalation vulnerability, exactly really what uh, what Spectre uh, was about. Now, then I looked at Rowhammer. Now, Rowhammer is this vulnerability, a little bit older than Spectre Meltdown, where essentially what you do is you flip certain bits in memory really, really fast, and that affects the neighboring bits that you may not have access to. And with this, you sort of can manipulate memory that you're not supposed to be able to manipulate. This was even sort of a little bit more amazing here uh, when it comes uh, to sort of old vulnerabilities. Turned out good old magnetic core memory, uh, which uh, was like used back in the 60s and such, had exactly this vulnerability. And uh, this was a well-described phenomenon. Uh, PDP-11s, which an old digital uh, computer was uh, used quite a bit, actually had a very specific feature uh, built into the system Where you could uh, calculate or measure what's called the worst case noise, which exactly means well, if you write certain patterns to memory, you may flip additional bits. So people maybe should uh, look a little bit at these old research papers uh, before they design new systems. And this is not just really a factor of these new systems being sort of too fast or overly tuned.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I remember um, in the past couple decades, I want to say probably around the Pentium time when um, there was uh, there was a lot of um, publicity about some of the processors had some issues with some floating point calculations, where you could ask, you know, uh, you could ask a PowerPC processor one math question and ask a Pentium processor the same math question, and you wouldn't necessarily get the same answer.
2: Correct. Uh, back then, Intel actually did a big recall. And I remember doing it myself where I sort of received this new processor I had to swap for the old one. It was, again, one of these real weird bugs where if you used one particular number, uh, there was a bug in the processor that would essentially interpret that number differently. Now, back then it was a little bit easier to swap CPUs. Mm. You usually had desktops with sockets and such. <laughs> and today, even if Intel would attempt the recall, it would be quite uh, difficult uh, to exchange CPUs. They're mostly soldered in these days, so uh, that wouldn't really work that well. I remember my old Commodore 64 had a special command uh, when you send it, it would actually physically destroy the computer. So Ooh. yes, uh, these, <laughs> these systems always, these problems always existed. Uh, people just sort of seem to forget about it that really hardware isn't perfect, and your software should not assume that hardware is perfect.
1: No, it's it's a great point. It's definitely worth remembering. Johannes Ulrich, as always, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Philip Tully. He's a principal data scientist at ZeroFox. At the RSA conference this year, he presented on the topic of artificial intelligence and how we may see more adversaries making use of it soon.
0: It's been about a decade now that enterprises and security professionals and defenders have been using artificial intelligence in general or machine learning-based data-driven methods to detect, prevent, and remediate attacks on perimeters. So more and more we're seeing the advent of these techniques, and they're applied to more and more things. Classically, it was applied to problems like um, spam detection in emails. There was, there was a new wave uh, of approaches involving detecting malware, whether it be binary malware or uh, URLs. URLs also in the, in the phishing domain, just finding malicious links detecting botnets, detecting um, network intrusion attempts, and what I do for ZeroFox more recently in detecting threats on social media, for example. And so these type of things have been evolving. uh, And more recently, you're starting to see, at least in the academic world and in the research realm, several examples of AI or data-driven techniques being leveraged for offensive purposes and uh, for attack automation. At the moment, I want to be clear, and there's a lot of hype around this type of thing. From my point of view and where I stand, I, I haven't seen any credible evidence of an AI or a data-driven technique being waged for an attack in the wild yet.
1: I'm curious because what I hear people say often is that the attackers are using the most efficient and and also least expensive ways to attack people, you know, they fish people because phishing works. They use ransomware because because it works. Is is it a matter that um, using uh, AI and machine learning? Uh, is there a cost associated with that that makes it unattractive to the adversaries?
0: Absolutely, and and this is this is a fair point. And this is I think one of the one of the primary reasons you don't see these attacks waged often, if at all, currently. But there are certain trends both in the hardware realm. Uh, where you're starting to see increased parallelization and cloud-based computing, and uh, easier access to GPUs, and kind of this continuation of uh, of Moore's law, and even technologies that are positioned post Moore's law, like quantum computing and neuromorphic computing, that are becoming more and more available. I mean, nowadays I can log into AWS and spin up a box and start to play with machine learning tools. within within an hour as a non-expert. And this was never possible 5, 10 years ago. Uh, On the software side, you have trends that kind of match this, right? You have deep learning, the rise of deep learning itself, which kind of the the previous generation of machine learning models, I would say 10, 10, 15 years ago and even before then, all relied on hand-tuned features. So you'd have to define in advance what the models that you were building should care about. Deep learning kind of automates that process away. You don't need to hand-tune features and do feature engineering anymore. On top of this, you have different trends. You know, you have educational resources like Coursera and code sharing via GitHub and Stack Overflow. And these type of things kind of lower the bar for entry. You have lots of open source data sets and, and pre-trained models and professionally quality open source libraries like TensorFlow that are being released by these big companies, and these are extremely powerful tools. There's a general trend to try to lower the bar. So what we're seeing more is that you know beforehand, you would probably have to be an expert or get a PhD or get a master's or, or have some type of specialized training in this field uh, to kind of practice these techniques. But I, I, I expect, if, if it's not happening already, I expect it more and more for these skills to be taught earlier on in education cycles, in college and in high school, and I think it's going to be par for the course. In, in not even five years away, uh, that people will start to use techniques like this on a on a more regular basis. So the trends are all pointing towards lowering the bar for entry, and when you think about that in terms of the attacker, uh, lowering the bar for entry and you know eliminating these technological hurdles uh, is going to kind of speed up their processes and and make them more appealing.
1: So, where do you suppose we would see the adversarials first turning to this technology? Is is there an area that you think is most likely?
0: I've worked on a project before with a, with a colleague, John Seymour, that was concerned about um, automating spear phishing. And so we built a, a tool that didn't take us very long. And so, this is kind of what got this idea in motion about the ease of applying machine learning on offense. It took us a few months to build this tool, which went out and Procured information from people's Twitter timelines. We had a model that was able to generate tweets at a high level, and we would be able to take information from each individual user's timeline and seed the model with that information. So, if you're posting a lot on your Twitter or your or your social media about cybersecurity or the recent vacation you went on or the recent movie that you just saw that you loved, the model would be seeded with this kind of interest, right? This this hobby or this uh, this general interest that you have and that you're posting about. And the hypothesis was that if the post that we targeted you with was concerned with that interest and it aligned with kind of the, the content of your timeline, that you'd be much more likely to click on a link that was served up to you via a tweet. And uh, and this was borne out in the data. We, we ran a simulation where attacks like this were a lot more successful than your run of the mill kind of question answer kind of attacks or uh, randomly targeting people with you know stuff that didn't necessarily match to their timeline. And you can do this all using a technique that relies on unsupervised learning. And this is kind of a, a sub-method of machine learning that um, does not need labeled data in order to work, so to speak. You can basically tell a model, hey, we have this distribution of data here. We want you to generate a piece of data or a piece of content that yeah. appears similar and has the same or similar statistics as this piece of data and this mountain of data we already have. And because you don't need to label that data or associate each piece of data with a label like malicious or benign, um, you can just go out and scrape or grab a bunch of data. And that's very easy to scale up, train a model up and start to use it in a much shorter amount of time than it takes a defender to spin up a similar model that might be used for defense because the defender actually has to label each piece of data malicious, or benign in order to better predict an attack or uh, a non-attack that's incoming.
1: How should we be preparing then? It's interesting to me that um, we're still kind of dealing with the human factor here. You know, we're using, the bad guys could be using AI to better fool the people. Um, In this arms race of uh, machine versus machine, AI versus AI, is the weak link still the meat in the middle, the humans?
0: Yeah, I would say the the human is, is always going to be a weak link in this sense. In that example, it's very clear that uh, especially on a social media-based venue like Twitter, it's it's hard for a human to decipher whether or not a post was generated by a bot or a human. Attackers have always had an advantage simply because of what's at stake. They only need to win a few times in order to win that battle overall. Whereas blue teams, you really need to, or or defenders really need to have detection that approaches 100% success. Uh, so I think what's what's different this time around is that in the cybersecurity domain, you have politics, or you have a little bit more nuance than you do in, I guess, generic machine learning or generic image recognition and other natural language processing, other other high-level applications to which machine learning is applied. In those realms, and in kind of the the core machine learning research field. You have people sharing data often with each other, researchers sharing data, and this kind of accelerates the field and makes these these models and these methods advanced in a shorter amount of time. The Kind of the position of the cybersecurity field is a little bit different because sharing data can be uh, either illegal because of contractual obligations you have with your clients. Mm. Um, the data can be too sensitive to share uh, because it contains personal information or whatnot data is secret sauce. It's intellectual property. So if you have two companies that are developing a similar approach, they're competing with each other. They don't necessarily want, or they're not incentivized to share their data, right? They want to build a more accurate model uh, than their competitor. And so they view it as something, as data, this this fundamental thing that gives them a leg up in, in this fiercely competitive market.
1: That's Philip Tully from Zero Fox.